Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. We're quite glad we didn't do one last week because it's odds on that we would have failed to predict just how catastrophic the government's handling of the Owen Patterson affair would turn out to be. So let's see if we can do a bit better this time with Alex Andreo, who joins me this morning. Hi, Alex. Morning, Andrew. So let's start with that continuing fallout from Patterson. Conservative MPs are still furious at being pushed into this position. George Eustace made it even worse over the weekend by calling it a storm in a teacup. And on Friday, the Conservative leader over Labour was down to 1%. First up, whose head is going to roll for this? There's been concerted efforts to pin it all on Mark Spencer, the chief whip. Yeah, I don't think anyone's head will roll over this Mm -hmm. um, because I think Mark Spencer is actually quite well respected as a chief whip. So I don't think he'll um, get the blame. And in any case, the problem is internal. Um, Mm. So the problem is a loss of faith internally within the Conservative Party. And the Conservative Party know that a chief whip does not order a three-line vote on any issue without Number 10's say-so. So everyone knows the order came from Johnson. If this was about presenting... Uh, something to the outside world, maybe it would make sense to have a sort of sacrificial, uh, a symbolic sacrificial lamb. But the problem is internally within the Conservative Party, it's Conservative backbenchers that are really pissed off. Hmm. Uh, And so to offer them a sacrificial lamb when they all know the order came from Johnson would be completely meaningless. There's a fantastic quote in the Times. One cabinet minister said that Spencer had lost any credibility with Tory MPs after whipping them to vote for the amendment. Well, even a, somebody on the outside like me knows that the chief whip doesn't do things off their own bat. Exactly. And, and you know, you can take that quote and transpose it entirely to Johnson. The, mm. That is the person MPs are um, angry at because he's the one that marched them up a hill and then marched them straight back down again. I mean, there were people going out on the morning round to defend the government's uh, decision and defend the government's handling on this 60 minutes before Jacob Rees-Mogg stood up in the House of Commons and you turned on it. How do you think this one's going to develop over the next couple of days then? Because it hasn't gone away, has it? The opposition are demanding that Johnson be present for the debate. This will be an interesting one because apparently he's... Uh, schedule does allow him to be present for the debate. Um, he's not due to be anywhere after 12 o'clock is, is uh, his firmest commitment of the day. So he could show up for the debate. And in fact, many MPs would argue that he shouldn't have been present and arguing for this last week when the Patterson issue kicked off. And he should be today when the wider issue of standards is being discussed. So it will be interesting to see what happens with that. Labour are demanding three things from the government, that uh, Number 10 rules out giving Patterson a peerage, 
that uh, they commit to an investigation of the COVID contracts given to Randox, which is the firm that Patterson was lobbying on behalf and worked for. Um, there are more revelations in today's times about uh, those contracts, 133 million worth of contracts were awarded before uh, uh, actually the Department of Health found out that Randox didn't have the equipment necessary to do the testing it had been given a contract for. And then the third issue is the issue of disgraced Rob Roberts, the Conservative MP that was found to have committed uh, serious sexual misconduct, but because of a loop in the rules, uh, has now been readmitted to the Tory party. So they're asking that he's kicked out of the Tory party. So Johnson is supposed to be there, so put your money on a positive lateral flow test by uh, that morning. <laughs> uh, number 10 is definitely nailed on. No, no, because that would have huge political costs for him. But it, he would say that the Randock stuff works, look, it proves. <laughs> there are also rumours that Lindsay Hoyle may make a significant intervention. Yeah, and this has kind of put the nose of the existing standards committee out somewhat, hasn't it? Well, Lindsay Hoyle is, I, I think that's slightly tongue-in-cheek, to be honest, because Lindsay Hoyle um, is always going on about how people shouldn't brief the media before they brief Parliament, and this rumour of an intervention has leaked over the weekend, but it hasn't been briefed, as far as I can tell, by Lindsay Hoyle, and there are loads of people who work for Parliament, so it may be a genuine leak. And the people sort of going, aha, he complains that when stuff is briefed to the press, um, but now he's doing it himself. I it, This doesn't seem like something that has been briefed to the press, mm -hmm. in my view. It looks like a, a traditional leak. But also the, the Parliamentary Committee on Standards is preparing a report that's out this week. So that may be stepping on a few toes. Their report is on how the standards process needs to be improved. So their report is on perhaps the person that does the investigating not being the same person that is then presenting those findings to the committee. And procedural bits and bobs like that, perhaps a right to appeal, etc., etc. Lindsay Hoyle's intervention, as I understand it, will be much more about what MPs are allowed to do and not allowed to do. And there's even... Uh, a suggestion that he may ban consultancy roles altogether. He may ban MPs holding roles as advisors to uh, to companies altogether, as distinct from, you know, people who keep up their lawyers' practice, for instance, by yeah. doing a day's worth for the Citizens Advice Bureau, people who keep up their medical practice by doing a day's worth uh, a week in an emergency room. Um, that would still be allowed. But people like, actually, Andrew Mitchell, um, according to a report I've seen, is one of the people making the most money from just sitting on loads of boards and advising them. Ed Davey is actually one of the people making quite a lot of money, even though there is a note uh, on his register of interest that the money he makes from his consultancy goes towards the care of his son, who is 
uh, has severe learning difficulties. It's also fair to point out that different sources are pointing out different things. For example, The Guardian is saying that it's the Standards Committee that will intervene on outside consultancies and the Telegraph is saying that it will be Lindsay Hoyle that's looking at that. So I guess we'll know later today who recommends what. Over the weekend as well, hapless George Eustace also wrongly claimed that uh, Catherine Stern, the standards investigator, can't investigate Boris Johnson over the redecoration of his flat in Downing Street. She absolutely can. And obviously there was a huge talk last week about whether the reform in enormous scare quotes of the standards process was to head off that investigation into Johnson's multiple interesting donations. This stuff moves very, very slowly. Does it mean that any attempt to stonewall investigations into Boris Johnson is kind of politically impossible now? Yeah, I I don't personally by the the uh, the idea that they were trying to dismantle the um, process because it was about to look at Johnson um, the the electoral commission is actually looking at the issue of the redecoration at the moment and the standards commissioner has said that she will not start an investigation in any case until the electoral commission have finished theirs and come up with a finding. Um, so there's no guarantee that she's either about to look at this or will ever look at this. The point to understand, and I think the point for the wider public to understand, is that people's conduct is investigable under various standards rules. So when you have someone who is a minister, but also an MP, and the issue involves a donation from from party donors, that, which is where uh, precisely the redecoration of the number 10 flat questions fall under, that is capable of being investigated under the ministerial code, which it has been, under electoral rules, which it is being, and under rules for the conduct the conduct of MPs, because, of course, Johnson is still also an MP. I'm not sure that they're trying to head off some investigation. I think there is a general hubris in the Tory party because they have such a large majority and because that is Johnson's personality. He just, he hates people to bother his Brexiter mates. That's the bottom line here. If Owen Patterson where Dominic Grieve, who was somehow still in Parliament, he wouldn't have intervened. It is as simple as that. If it was someone he disliked or that had been irksome to him, he wouldn't have intervened. Owen Patson is a good boy. You know, he's one of the Tories who towed the line. He's one of the Tories who supported Brexit strongly, and therefore he's one of us according to Johnson, and he shouldn't be bothered with issues like ethics and standards. That's his general attitude. All this mess does raise the prospect of further distraction activity. And also, we talk about, you mentioned Brexit and mates, not exactly dead cats because a dead cat is a meaningless thing. Article 16 is not a meaningless thing. But Lord Frost has been cranking up momentum for Article 16 for weeks. Are we finally going to get it this week, do you think, now that COP26 is uh, is ending? Well, as you know, I didn't think this would happen until COP26 was finished. And I will still stand by that view. I think if Article 16 uh, is triggered, it will be triggered next week. There has been some toing and froing, some briefing and counter-briefing. The UK is threatening to drop out of programs like Copernicus and Horizon 
to be entirely honest, I don't understand the nature of the threat. If uh, the UK didn't think that programs like Horizon Europe, Compernicus, and even Euratom, mm. which is the the treaty that covers the the disposal of nuclear waste and things like that, if the UK doesn't think that those things offer it an advantage for the money it pays, then it shouldn't be part of them. And if it does think that those things offer it an advantage for the money it pays, then to drop out of them as a sort of threat is to cut our nose off to spite our face. So I really do not understand the nature of the uh, uh, threat. I mean, it causes a small bureaucratic disruption in the EU in that they've already decided their budget, taking into account the contributions that the UK has promised to make into the Horizon Europe program and Copernicus, etc. It's not a huge disruption. And like I said, the UK has made those commitments understanding that it gets more out of the Horizon Europe program than the money it puts in. To now decide they're going to threaten to drop out of them as a sort of countermeasure against the EU makes zero sense to me. But then again, the conduct of this government on this issue has made zero sense to me throughout. Closer to home, violence is already in the air. We've seen two buses satellites in Northern Ireland in the, in the past couple of weeks. RTE's Tony Connolly is writing that there's an air of inevitability about Article 16. The completely insouciant treatment of the Good Friday Agreement and the waving away of the threat of violence seems to be increasingly untenable, doesn't it? Yeah. And the the other thing that people should be informed about and that barely gets a mention in, you know, in the way these stories are reported is that the vast majority of the public in Northern Ireland support the protocol. Not only do the majority of people in Northern Ireland support the protocol, that support is increasing. It has increased over the last few months and is continuing to increase. And so if you now ditch the protocol as a basically capitulation to this tokenistic beginning of loyalist violence again, what message are you sending to the rest of the Northern Irish community? What is there to prevent paramilitary violence beginning to flare up from the other side, considering there is public support for the protocol? So the UK, rather Westminster, insisting that Northern Ireland should have a shittier deal as the rest of the UK, because actually their deal is working out very well. And Frost and uh, Arlene Foster admitted as much in a a sort of side, uh, in a fringe event around the Conservative Conference, they actually said the real problem is that markets have adjusted very, very quickly and trade between Northern Ireland and GB has dropped off a cliff But trade between Northern Ireland and the rest uh, of the island has increased threefold. So that is the real problem. The real problem is that the protocol as it stands is encouraging hugely to an all-island economy, which loyalists see as a further step, a further erosion 
to the idea of unionism. That is the real problem. And their answer to this is to say that no, Northern Ireland should have as bad a deal as the rest of the UK because that's fairness. But I'm telling you, the people of Northern Ireland do not buy to this narrative. Yeah, there was a hilarious piece in The Telegraph, I forget who wrote it, saying that the fact that imports from the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland have increased and exports from Northern Ireland to Southern Ireland have increased hugely, this proved that the protocol wasn't working for the economy of Northern Ireland. Just <laughs> hilarious. Now, the Express is in ecstasy for a trade war. Uh, On the brink, it says this morning, gigantic headlines. I saw that. Talk us through trade wars. It, I mean, I mean it is their, it's their version of edging, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Alex. I'm sure that surely has been... <laughs> This guy, Shane Brennan, head of the Cold Chain Federation, told The Guardian that if this happens, there will be a near prohibition on UK food exports to the EU. Talk us some trade war here, Alex. What's it yes. going to look like? Of course, anyone that's been reading the uh, Daily Express for the last few months would have thought <laughs> that their boycott had been so successful, there's hardly any EU goods being bought within the UK anyway. Um, look... The Express want their war um, and are disappointed every time the government pulls away from that brink. But pull away from that brink, the government must and will again. That is my prediction. A tariff war with Europe would be utterly, utterly disastrous to the UK economy at a point when it is trying to recover. We simply do not have the chains of supply able to replace the vital things we get from Europe. We simply do not have the trade agreements able to replace the exports we make into Europe. And so to engage in some kind of tit-for-tat tariff war with Europe is a nice threat and it gets lapped up by the people who would like it to happen. But ultimately, number 10 know that it is one that would reveal the the emptiness of the slogan, we need them more than, they need us more than we need them. They don't. It's as simple as that. And to engage in a full-on tra- tariff war would absolutely reveal unequivocally with whom the power, the balance of power lies in this, and it lies with Europe. Why? Because they are seven times the size of the UK, and because they are a federation of 26 nations, which is designed precisely to absorb this kind of market shock. So I imagine people in Europe are thinking, not all of them, but some of them, because there is a school that, you know, has lost patients with the UK for some years now, some of them will be thinking, bring it on. So disastrous, a bad idea, harmful to the UK economy. Almost certainly will be what happens. Definitely happening. (laughs) So all the stuff to look out for this week, obviously we're going to find out whether COP26 was really meaningful or a talking shop. It's a winter, the decision-making phase after the announcement. Yeah, it won't won't have been. There will be some nice side agreements, but there will be nothing meaningful on carbon emissions or the use of coal. Australian Minister for Resources, Keith Pitt, said today that we have no... Uh, intention to stop selling coal, to quote him, if they're buying, we are selling. Great stuff. Yeah. Well done, Australia. Also, the uh, Lord's Amendments on sewage 
and the pensions triple lock. What a fantastic combination. Are back in the Commons, <laughs> so there's going to be plenty of opportunities for U-turns there and the yes, government. Yes, and the policing bill is back yes. in the Commons later this week, so there will be a little bit of parliamentary ping-pong. That will be interesting to watch. On COVID, the government is pushing harder for boosters to uh, save Christmas, but the the infections peak is levelling out. I mean, is this, is this causing complacency for the public, do you think? They're, they're having to push quite hard on the booster thing. Well, I hope not. I mean, over the weekend we had we hit the previous sort of peaks of vaccinations per day, so we hit over four hundred thousand again, where it had dropped to half that uh, a month before. So, credit where credit's due, the government's campaign to um, encourage people to have their booster is working. Also on COVID, AstraZeneca is making an earnings announcement on Friday. Up to now, it's been selling its vaccine at cost. And you think that might change, do you? I think a lot of a lot of people are watching to see if they make a statement on this regarding the future, because AstraZeneca's commitment, uh, and, and the wording of this is important, was to sell the vaccine at cost during the pandemic. And so it People are looking for a clarification on whether AstraZeneca will shift its pricing after uh, the pandemic is no longer declared, as it were, which is a decision for the World Health Organization. Remember when they declared a pandemic because a certain number of countries were experiencing the infection uh, above a certain level. So when that drops to uh, below a certain level for enough countries, presumably the World Health Organization will come out and say that this is now uh, back to epidemic levels rather than a pandemic again. And at that point, AstraZeneca may be able to start selling their vaccine for profit. And they will be the mother of all big pharma debates when that happens. Well, Pfizer is already selling it for profit. And Pfizer actually last week had a really bullish profit statement. So, you know, other companies did not make the same decision that AstraZeneca did. Also on finance, the UK monthly and quarterly figures are out on Thursday, and you're saying they're going to point in different directions. Yeah, this is uh, this is interesting for, uh, for uh, figures wonks like me. So there's been a, a little difference opening up for some uh, time now between the quarterly and monthly statistics in terms of where the the uh, economy is in comparison to pre-pandemic levels. And that's because they're using slightly different stats to assess them. So the monthly figures are showing that the UK economy is about 1% lower than pre-pandemic levels. The quarterly figures are showing about twice that. They're showing that the UK economy is about 2% lower um, than pre-pandemic levels. And this is a problem because the monthly figures are, tend to be the ones the government uses because obviously they're more advantageous to it. They show a faster recovery, but the quarterly figures are the ones that the Bank of England uses. That creates a, a, a big problem for them. I mean, we at the moment, there are basically two estimates as to where the economy is compared to pre-pandemic levels, and they seem to be widening um, in their difference. So that's quite interesting to watch. And finally, of course, at the weekend, it's Remembrance Sunday. Alex, have you spotted this, uh, you must have your leaf at 11 o'clock thing that suddenly appeared this year? 
apparently uh if you're not wearing you've got your poppy on and the leaf isn't at 11 o'clock to mark the hour at which the armistice was signed then you're not remembrancing properly and you've got no respect this is new to me and i don't think anybody has ever heard of it until this year but apart this is now a major attack line on twitter from people with poppies in their in their logos and six digits and eight digits in their name extraordinary and they are of course the the very same people that object to being asked to wear a piece of cloth over their face in order to prevent infection, but insist that everyone has to wear a piece of paper in their lapel pointing a particular way. Two weeks ago, I invested in a beautiful face mask from the British Legion with a big poppy on it just to uh, make their heads explode. There you go, poppy face masks. (laughs) And that's Start Your Week. Thanks for listening. Let's hope it's a good one, but don't bet on it. Alex, thank you for joining me early this morning. Thanks for having me. Listeners, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled panel show tomorrow. Um, As viewers of Succession will know, the bunker has now been purchased by Waystar Royco. Uh, We saw Kendall on his phone with the telly on, and on the screen it said they had uh, one of their shows, which was called The Bunker. So, Alex, are you looking forward to some input from Shiv? Maybe Tom? Shall I do a thing? Shall I do a thing? (laughs) Absolutely. Am I doing a thing? thing. I think we need to be tougher on the raisin on this podcast. See you all next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Bodmasters production.